Hi, folks, and welcome to Dial a Myth, the podcast that explores myths, unusual beliefs, and weird history from the perspective of an obsessive amateur to figure out why they fascinate us and why they matter. In 1988, Forrest Fenn, an art collector from Santa Fe, learned that he had terminal cancer and decided to end his life in a unique way. Fenn would hide a treasure chest out in the wilderness go to his final resting place alongside the treasure and leave the treasure for some lucky adventurer to find. Forrest Fenn beat his cancer, but the idea of hiding treasure still fascinated him. Years later, Fenn left his treasure somewhere north of Santa Fe. Since then, over 65,000 people have gone searching, drawn in by the thrill of the chase. Although Fenn has offered hunters a few hints throughout the years, he maintains that the treasure can be found by means of a map and the following poem. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease, but tarry scant with marvel gaze. Just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know. I've done it tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. This is episode two, Forrest Fenn's Treasure. This episode will be slightly different than the last. I'd like to introduce Kyle Corder, a fan enthusiast who introduced me to the story of Forrest Fenn's treasure. Kyle and I will be co-hosting this episode to explore the story behind Fenn, his treasure, and why they are both so fascinating. Kyle, uh, why don't you start by telling us the story of how you found out about the Forrest Fenn treasure? Sure. So started out, I was at a beer tasting with our friend Brad, and we we're talking about D.B. Cooper for some reason, and that kind of shifted into this guy that I still don't know his name, and he uh, he goes, "Have you heard about this old man who buried a treasure in the Rockies worth three million dollars?" And I'm like, "That's not true." I didn't believe him at all. He's like, "No, go look it up when you get home," and I'm like, "Okay, I'll do that." And I asked him where he thinks the treasure is, and he tells me Georgetown, Colorado. And we'll get into that later, but there's literally zero evidence that this treasure might be in Georgetown, Colorado. <laughs> so I'd like to find this guy, but I don't know his name. But I went home, looked it up, and everything he said was real. So maybe it is in Georgetown, Colorado. <laughs> that or he's not really a threat looking for the treasure, right? <laughs> So let's open it up and kind of talk about Forrest Fenn a little bit. What I know about Fenn is he's uh, he's about 87 years old now. He has some real connections to West Yellowstone in particular because that was kind of a childhood vacation spot for him. We also kind of know that from his own literature that he kind of got into a lot of trouble as a kid. His father was a school principal. There's lots of instances of him sort of running afoul of his father as a student. I mean, what else sort of strikes you about the childhood and early life of Fed? Um, Yellowstone just seems to be, West Yellowstone seems to be really big in his life. 
even after his father had passed, he continued to go there throughout his life. Some things that are big on him there are fly fishing. Just I think it was a way for him to get away in life, hmm. and that's where he always went. A lot of his in his books that we both read, a lot of his memories were in Yellowstone. Absolutely. Well, and he's got this great kind of connection too. I mean. Yes, he does sort of uh, you know, run afoul of his father. You get the stories of, I, I, I don't know about you, but I recall there's this great story about whenever he got in trouble and his father was going to, uh, it, his father would like whip him with a switch kind of thing, but he would tell Finn to go out to the bush in the back and pick a switch that he thought was appropriate for the severity of the punishment that he deserved. And so they kind of, he kind of gamed out this idea of, you know, how, you know, what can I get away with here? How little of a punishment versus, you know, what my father's going to agree with me on. But I mean, that being said, like, he does, you know, uh, there's that great picture of his father's fly fishing hat in the book. I mean, he clearly has this sort of, I mean, as you'd expect, this this deep connection with his father and kind of a, not a desire to follow him per se, but a, you know, viewing himself through the eyes of his father in some ways. Yeah, I would agree with that. The Switch story is funny. I mean, at one point, he, he it kind of helps him involve as a person himself because at one point he just took the biggest switch he could find sometimes because he wouldn't have one beating instead of two <laughs> right <laughs> there is the the other one that struck me as hilarious about that is oh, i can't remember it's the it's the incident where he runs across the day yeah, there was some incident where he had gotten in trouble for running across desks at the school and his father uh, spanked him at school for, you know, violating the school rules. And then when he got home, his father spanked him for getting a spanking at school, <laughs> which I got a kick out of that. After Fen gets out of school, it seems to me like he's kind of, he kind of doesn't know what to do. So he joins the military and he becomes a pilot. He also kind of displays this sort of like technical aptitude throughout his life. He gets kind of selected for some engineering stuff that's fairly significant, but he basically makes a career for himself as a fighter pilot. Do you think that's fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I think uh, I think a lot of things in the military are going to carry over to what we talk about throughout this episode. Um, for just some quick examples... Uh, he contemplated suicide because he was shot down twice. Right. There's a waterfall that he kept flying over that he eventually wanted to get back to. And uh, the grave he stumbles upon at that waterfall. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating instant. Before we started recording, we were kind of talking about the role of the French conflict in Indochina and sort of the, you know, leading up to Dien Bien Phu, all that sort, all that sort of 50s history. But talking about this guy who and i mean my recollection of it as you put it was that the thing that really sort of got fan looking at this grave was nobody knew about this guy nobody remembered who he was nobody he's just it's it's this grave out in the wilderness you know it, it did strike me as kind of a funny almost i mean almost a metaphor for and this is off the off the track i don't know it struck me as kind of a great metaphor for like the French involvement in China. Like we always kind of right. forget about, you know, what the French oh, did yeah, there. Sure. I mean, that that struck me as interesting. But and, and the other thing that we kind of talked about with respect to Fens getting shot down twice is there's that one incident where he basically kind of he thinks real hard about just kind of walking off into Laos and never being seen again, which is, you know, fairly, I, th I think the only thing that really brings him back is he wants to see his wife and kids again. I mean, that's about all there is to it. Yeah, I think with the uh, with the grave thing, another, another thing that stood out was this waterfall he kept flying over was so beautiful flying over it. They finally get there to land and it was supposed to be beautiful and he gets there and it was not. Right. And that's where this he stumbles upon... Not just this grave, but other graves. But he trips over this one in particular, and, and he he thinks this person's buried in a not so nice place, and nobody's nobody knows nobody knows anything about mm -hmm. where he's at. Yeah, no, I think that's a 
if I had to pick a transformative kind of event in the guy's life, and I mean, he definitely makes the point throughout that, you know, the military did the good things for him that does for a lot of kids at that age where, you know, I mean, he... He credits it with giving him discipline and all this other stuff, which, I mean, great, fine, whatever. But that incident seems to me to be kind of a watershed in his life where you can kind of point to this is the before the Grave Forest Fen, this is the after the Grave Forest Fen. But yeah, it is fascinating. How he, I mean, extraordinarily lucky dude. And then he gets shot down twice, never gets captured. Basically walks back to camp on one of those incidents, which I mean, my God, you know. Right. And then the other one where is where he contemplated suicide. Hmm. And he had his pistol and his flare gun. And I mean, he, he talks about it in his book about he was ready to, to end it. Right. And then he hears a helicopter in the distance, but he didn't know if it was his or what. And decides to shoot the flare instead in his... It's it. It's it. He gets out of the military. And again, he's kind of at this weird transitional point where he doesn't really know what to do with his life, right? And so my understanding is he basically kind of... He, he needs to... You know, he decides that he needs to go into business of some sort. And he thinks to himself, okay... What's a business where I can make a lot of money, right? What's a business that has good margins, that sort of thing? And so he decides art collecting is the way to do that. And he has a super unconventional track record as an art collector. I mean, you've got what? The the, kid, the incident where he has, uh, he allows kids to touch his art and gets just, you know, some, some very nasty reactions for doing that. And then the other thing that I thought was super neat was, well, neat's not the right word. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about him was the fact that he's like willingly and knowingly sold forgeries. I mean, that's a weird, and I think it makes sense in the context of the fact that the guy is, you know, an amateur, but it struck me as really weird, frankly. Some things that stuck out with his art dealings to me that you pointed out were, you know, the, the kids touching, the forgeries. A lot of prominent art collectors, art dealers didn't like it, like you said. Yeah. But he seemed to not care. He enjoyed being different. Yes, he is definitely a, I think of the word iconoclast when I think of Fenn, because he is a guy who, he seems to, I don't think he's out to break the rules, but I think whenever the rules are slightly different than he wants them to be, he takes great pleasure in breaking I mean, that was the, I got the biggest kick out of, and I don't agree with the reasoning at all, but there is a story in, I think it's in Too Far to Walk, where he gets interviewed and the he gets a list of questions beforehand because he kind of likes to, you know, groom the interview, which I mean, makes sense. But he gets, and I think I've got it quoted here. This is, again, I believe a quote from uh, Too Far to Walk, but, when I heard the camera start to whir, I gasped. And when she asked the first question, I gasped again. Please, Mr. Fenn, tell me why anyone would want to own a fake painting. All caps here. Now wait just a minute, lady. That question is not on the list. I could see the dumb cameraman laughing, although it was a soul-crushing moment for me. I had blundered into the fierce reality of human nature at its rawest moment and with about 20 million people watching. Through the rapidly dissipating light of my career, I managed to respond. Picture yourself in the National Museum of Art in Washington. The docent is walking your group through the galleries and stops in front of a great painting. You look at it for a few seconds, then say, That's the greatest masterpiece I've ever seen. I just love everything about it. The composition, the palette, the symphony of color. It is truly breathtaking. The docent pauses for a few seconds, then says, Yes, it is very lovely, but it isn't authentic. It's a forgery by Elmer de Horry. Well, a few seconds ago you loved the painting, and it hasn't changed. If you like it less just because it's a fake, who's the fraud now? Which, again, I disagree with the reasoning wholeheartedly, but you can tell that he wants to 
be an iconoclast. He wants to break the rules. Again, not necessarily just to break them, but because they're different than what he thinks makes sense. I think that what that story illustrates is he marches to his own drum. He does what he wants to do. And if there's some sort of social expectation that's different in the way, he doesn't particularly care for it. I agree. I think what it all comes down to in the end is he never really cared about the art. He only cared about the money he made. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I think it's fun to talk about that in the sense of... Because I mean, at the end of the day, selling uh, <laughs> selling forgeries to people who know they're forgeries, to people who can afford art, it's different, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. There are some points, though, where I think it does get a little bit questionable. And what we were talking about that I thought was real interesting is, so Finn owns a pretty big chunk of land near what's called the San Lazaro Pueblo. And my understanding is that the Pueblo is a site of some historical significance. It's a part of its own by the National Park Service. And it is a uh, 17th century-ish site. A tribe of Native Americans called the Tano Native Americans lived there and uh, were eventually massacred by the uh, conquistadors. And Fen owns a pretty big chunk of the site. He won't let archaeologists on the site to conduct digs. He conducts his own digs there. He, keep in mind, the guy's not a trained archaeologist. He is a, you know, he is an amateur. He has done things like, you know, we were talking about, was it the Suzanne Summers incident where he, uh, he you know, was friends with Suzanne Summers and like they dug up and reburied shit. It, that was the other gal. Oh, that was a Charmaine. He's done some strange stuff there. Like he, uh, that's Alan something, Charmaine Allen something. Allred. Allred. Yeah. There's, the, there's this woman there, Charmaine Allred, with whom he like dug up stuff and like reburied it and did just all sorts of weird stuff that frankly is really bad for the historical record. So I mean, it's mostly harmless, but you do kind of like say occasionally like, well, well wait a minute, you know, some of this isn't great. Yeah, I mean, for that one, I think one of the examples is they come across one of those jar lids from way back in those days and they have lunch in this site and they're like, well, we shouldn't open up the jar. But in the end, they do. So they don't have, I guess, his moral compass only goes to a certain point and then he has no problem just breaking that. And they open it and inside was where his family probably at the time stored their food. And then they put it back the way it was. But it's already been opened, like you said, so. Right, there's no, like, I mean, the amount of, you know, the stuff that archaeologists do with that kind of thing is is sophisticated. Like, there's no way, I mean, they've broken the seal on that thing. It is, they, they destroyed part of the historical record. I mean, that's a, and, you know, another thing we were talking about at the beginning of this was, I mean, Finn has gotten in some trouble in the past because, and I say trouble again, he hasn't, you know, been charged with anything, but... Finn basically got raided by the FBI at one point in the 2000s for being suspected of being involved in the illegal trade of antiquities. Santa Fe, where he lives now, is a hub for the trade of illegal antiquities. And I mean, the investigation that he was involved in was serious enough that people committed suicide in the wake of this thing. I mean, it was... He, there is something to be said for being an iconoclast, but... There's also some points where you kind of scratch your head, and again, like you said, you, 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 Fen's moral compass seems to be calibrated a little bit differently sometimes. Did, did he get any punishments from this investigation? No, he was, I believe it was conducted in connection with digs at Four Corners, I want to say, in illegal trading of stuff. There was a lot of noise in the 2000s about him getting busted for, and I forget what the name of the law is, but there's some law that covers excavating historic sites. And I mean, like, it's pretty serious. You can get up to 10 years in prison for it. He got investigated, but I don't think there was any, I don't think he's ever been charged with anything. I think it's, everything he's done has been legal. It's just kind of, on that gray line of stuff you do with dig sites and stuff you do with cultural heritage. Would you be surprised if he was ever convicted someday of that? 
I don't know. I mean, I think, and we were kind of talking about this beforehand, but I think that one of the, the real cynical theory on it would be that maybe if he was looking at being in trouble in the, in the mid-2000s, uh, like one of the items that and we'll get to this later, but there's been some discussion of like, oh, maybe there's some like pre-Columbian statuettes in this thing, right? One question is, did he have some stuff that was that he should not have had and buried that along with the treasure? I mean, right. or not not buried again, hidden, but or hid rather. But you get the idea. In the process of hiding this treasure. Fenn also released a book called The Thrill of the Chase that, it's interesting. It is mostly a series of like short vignettes about Fenn's life, but it also contains the poem that we read at the top of the episode. And then later on, he publishes another book that's kind of the same, that's the same vignettes about his life. I wouldn't say it's an autobiography insofar as it doesn't really tell a... Com- I mean, well... It's more it's more short stories from his life, but they're in no chronological order. Yes, it very much presents a picture of Fenn and tells us the story of Fenn, but, yeah, it's structured in kind of very brief time slices, you know, things that are important to him. Something funny I noticed in... I think it's the thrill of the chase is he criticizes some major writers. Yeah, that's how he opens the thrill of the chase is he basically says, I never read a lot and he picks up Lord, what is it? He picks up JD Salinger, he picks up not Hemingway, but he I mean it's uh Fitzgerald. Yeah, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Great Gatsby, and there's one other, like, fairly major piece of literature he reads. And yeah, he he wants nothing to do with the project of traditional literature. And I mean, that fits into this idea of he kind of, like, spins these folk tales. He tells, you know, the the, uh, <laughs> the very familiar way to put it is, I mean, it feels like you're reading stories that your grandpa told you. They're stories of incidents rather than the story of Fenn's life that happen to tell about Fenn's life. I think that's a that's one way to characterize it. I would agree. I just thought it was ironic that he's that he opens up criticizing these major historical writers, hmm. and I think he's actually the terrible writer. Yeah, I mean that's one thing that really stood out to me and by the time he gets to Too Far to Walk, the second book, I think his writing has definitely improved. But it's, and they're not long books. I mean, if you're interested in learning more about Fenn, they are the kind of thing you'd read in an afternoon. But he is a very, yeah, he's not a great writer. I mean, he is a, it is clear that he is a great storyteller. And I think what he tries to do is basically put the way you would tell a story that you are telling to someone orally in writing. And yeah, sometimes it just falls flat. I mean, there were points in, in reading Thrill of the Chase where I really did kind of scratch my head and say, you know, Christ, this guy cannot write a book, <laughs> you know? It's kind of it's, you kind of think he wrote it as he just kind of like wrote stories and then put them in a book. He never actually went back through the stories. I feel and put them in the right order. Yeah, they're, they're agreed. Just thro- they're just thrown into a book. Yeah, you get this sort of like choppy feeling of like here are things that Ted was thinking about on any given day. <laughs> I think the best way to describe too far to walk is the way you said earlier. It's just telling stories with like your grandpa. Like I think he's just telling stories. They're in a book. And, and there you have it. I mean. Right, right. 100% agree. With this background of Fenn's life and mine and his career as an art collector, I think it's probably a good, as good a point as any to jump into how he gets to hiding the treasure. So I think it, it kind of all started when he was diagnosed with cancer and was given a certain amount of time to live, wasn't expected to survive. He decides he wants to create this treasure 
for people and to create this legacy and he's going to go hide it and he's going to take his life there and this is where we come back to suicide again and the legacy i think that's part of the reason why he's hiding treasure now one thing that struck me as really interesting from the suicide angle is that keep in mind fen gets cancer in 88 or thereabouts his father actually had cancer around the same time and did kill himself with sleeping pills. And that was something that struck me as my understanding of Fenn's reason for coming up with hiding this treasure in the first place was he saw a real appeal in doing what his father did, but he wanted to do something more permanent or more memorable or, or something that was a little more meaningful i think the uh, yeah the the phrasing from and i am i am stealing this from a story from the uh california sunday magazine the the quote is while he's thinking about killing himself late one night fen had an idea what if he followed in his father's footsteps but with an adventurous spin he would stuff a treasure chest with glittering valuables, write a clue-laden poem that would point to its location, and then march out to his favorite spot on Earth to take some pills and lie in eternal repose with the gold, like a doomed conquistador in an Indiana Jones movie. All he needed was someone to write and publish the book in which he'd place the poem, because there was no point in hiding it if no one knew I hid it, Ben said. Which leads to then a plot twist. He beats the cancer. Never gets a chance to go hide it. I think he credits his family to helping him beat the cancer. His wife especially wasn't a quitter, he said. And she wasn't going to let him quit. And so he beats the cancer. And then almost ten years later decides to hide it anyways. Right. That to me is really interesting. That he takes so much time between beating cancer and going out and hiding this thing it's you know what again one cynical angle we talked about is i mean maybe it was when he was dealing with his problems with the authorities because the timing is consistent with that and i mean you know maybe to be a little more mundane and i think probably to be a little more realistic about it maybe the answer is just that you know at that point he was in his late 70s i mean mm -hmm. It may very well have been that he was looking death in the face again in a way that he last had done in the 80s when he was fighting cancer. So before we jump deep into why he hid this treasure, let's describe the physical characteristics of it. So we know that, and if you look on the Facebook page, or I think we've got it on our Instagram as well, there is a picture of a chest that is supposed to be the chest. We know it weighs about 42 pounds. We know it has in it gold, both in the form of, I believe, nuggets, uh, in the form of gold coins. It's got gems of various sorts in it. It's got jewelry in it, um, statuettes of some description. I mean, it is a, a substantial chunk of... I think every description I've heard is that's valued somewhere between... One and like three and a half million dollars. I'm trying to think, what else do we know about it? So he hides this treasure, and it's it's everything you described there. And then he needs to write the books that we've been describing. And he writes The Thrill of the Chase, which contains the poem that you read. And then he writes the second book, Too Far to Walk. They're both kind of autobiographies. Thrill of the Chase is a, is a biography about his life. Too Far to Walk is short stories from his life in, in no chronological order. It contains a map of the Rocky Mountains, which supposedly has a hint to the treasure that I think anyone yet is to figure out. Right. And that's you know, one of the things I think is so neat about these books is they do kind of give you the feel of, because they're both written using just a series of vignettes, a series of short stories. Again, like Kyle said, there's not really a strong chronological order to them. But it does kind of give you the feel like you're looking at all of them as kind of clues. It creates the impression that 
every story somehow might have a clue in it. We know that there are clues in the poem and on the map kind of thing. So why did he hide the treasure? Yeah, so this is, I think, a fascinating question. Now, what we do know is that one thing he has said is that he uh, wanted to give people sort of hope about life in general. He wanted to get people to explore the great outdoors, these places that he was fascinated with as a child. But... I think there is another explanation to this that I don't know that I describe it as particularly hard to come up with or obscure or anything like that, but one explanation I think is really meaningful is let's go back to Vietnam and Laos, right? The incident that changed Fen's life was seeing this grave of this guy who nobody knew nobody you know he was he was lost to history and thinking i don't want to be that one reason that fen hid this treasure and it might be the dominant reason in my mind is that he wanted to create a legacy a story a myth that would last beyond his lifetime I completely agree. I think he's. I think we've covered that with his personality. He's one that wanted to leave a legacy of his own. Uh, I think in talking with about his father, he's disappointed in the legacy that his father had left because there's no one there besides himself and his family to remember it. And he thought his father was this great person and there should be a bigger legacy. So I think he wanted to leave a bigger legacy for himself. And I do think that grave he stumbled upon was the first time legacy entered his mind. Sure. I like that you brought that point up about his father because the story about his father and his memoirs. And as a side note, I mean, something that tells you about this guy's desire for legacy, he's basically written two memoirs. And one thing that we forgot to mention that was in the treasure is apparently there's another autobiography Mm -hmm. in this treasure chest. I mean... This is a guy who I think is obsessed with legacy. But the the father thing, there is a portion of Too Far to Walk where he includes a picture of his father's fly fishing hat. And he kind of, I mean, treats it with almost this, not reverence, but I mean, he uh, basically says, you know, people might not understand the significance of this, but this is a deeply significant object to me. One of the theories that we've talked about that I also think is a uh, reason that Fen has done this, and maybe not one he'd consciously identify, but one that I think fits in with sort of his way of thinking about the world is that hiding this treasure is a form of telling folk history. One book that I read in preparation for this was, uh, the last name is Dillinger. I don't have the first name in front of me. It was called Magical Treasure Hunting in Europe and North America, A History. And it told the story of the, the what's and why's of treasure hunting from basically the 17th century to the 20th century. The theory that, that this guy came up with was that treasure hunting was predominantly a magical sort of phenomenon in the early modern period. And this is what he focuses on. I mean, the stuff on the 19th and 20th century is kind of a footnote, all this, but that you knew the magic words or you, you know, had a dousing rod or you had some sort of magical power that enabled you to find this treasure. In the 19th and 20th centuries, for historical reasons, it underwent this transition where it suddenly became... People who hid treasure, hid treasure to create a story. And people who went looking for treasure basically became folk historians of their own or became people who sort of retold these stories. Yeah, I mean, that folk history is real with this because in Yellowstone, 
people are going on vacation there and the story is being spread around just all throughout Yellowstone and it's leading to just a family on vacation searching for this treasure. And that was evidenced in uh, Dal's blog. Right. So this Dal Neitzel, I think, is a really fascinating figure in understanding the Fen treasure's folk history. He has this blog, and he's one of a couple of people who does, but he's the one who stands out. He's become this sort of, not only a reteller of the Fen myth, in that he's sort of detailed, his chronicled his experience searching for it, the treasure, that sort of thing, but... He's also within, like, there's a fairly active subreddit, for example, dealing with the Fen treasure. And, like, what Dal says in terms of the treasure has some weight. I mean, he becomes not only a reteller of this story, but a part of it, too, in a really interesting way. So we're in the Dial of Myth podcast. So how does this fit? You're probably wondering, is this treasure real? Right. And, I mean, I think that's a great question. You know, there's... On the one hand, we have, you know, we, we have these pictures that are allegedly of the treasure. On the other hand, I mean, Fenn does kind of play by his own rules. And I mean, one analysis of this is that Fenn is creating a legacy out of thin air. He might just be telling the story to tell the story he might be telling people his theory might be that or and certainly the theories of a lot of people have gone looking for it are that you know the actual experience of looking for the treasure is more important than finding any treasure but yeah I mean I think there's I'm inclined to believe it's real because it's too fantastic to make up, but I think there's a there's a case to be made for it not being real too. I mean, here's here's a wild theory. He's got a shop in Santa Fe. He's had these books written. Nobody's buying them. Creates a legacy of a treasure to sell these books. Right. I mean, that's and you know, it's one thing where I uh, this is maybe gullible of me, but I thought about the theory. I said, well, he's got all this stuff laying around and he's been financially successful. But at the same time, this is kind of a way to, this, is, this would be a great way to leave an inheritance to your kids, you know, by selling a bunch of these books. It is interesting that you bring up his kids, though, because they've been, and his wife, have been quiet on the whole issue. Oh, yeah, I don't think there's any, I don't recall any comment from his wife or his daughters on the treasure, in the least, I mean. But I do think it is real. I think, I don't, I don't, I don't know why, but I just do. Right, it is this kind of intu- intuitionistic, I mean, you can't really, like, put your finger on what it is about it. But no, I agree, I'm inclined to believe it's real, and... I, I, I hate to lean back on it again, but I I think it's real because it's too fantastic to make up. Well, I think I do think it's real, and I think it just it's fascinating. But why does the treasure fascinate us? I think it's real because we want it to be real. Right. I think what makes this such a profoundly interesting topic is. We live in a time where, I mean, you think about the concept of treasure and you think about things from time immemorial. You think about maybe pirates. You think about maybe, you know, antiquities. But we live in a world that is mapped out, a world that is predictable, a world where we don't find things like hidden treasure. And I think a great deal of why the fan treasure fascinates us is it breaks us out of a very mundane world. It reminds us of the possibility that maybe someday we will stumble across this great windfall. This, you know, we will hit the jackpot, if you will. I mean, that, that there's there's a hidden world all around us. There is, despite the fact that we are sort of locked into a very quotidian day-to-day existence, there is a real sense of adventure out there. And, you know, we can go out and experience the thrill of the chase. That's the name of the book. (laughs) Hits it on the head. But I think it also rekindles a fascination with nature in the wilderness in a world dominated by screen time right now. 
I mean, I think a lot of people even are going looking for the treasure, but are finding happiness in getting outside and hiking and exploring. And even Fenn in his interviews has said that that was one of his reasons is he, he's sick and tired of the world looking at a stream instead of looking at at the trees and the mountains. Right. Well, there's I, I think there's even a quote where Fenn basically says, you're not going to find this looking at a screen. I mean, you have to be out there to do it. One of the other reasons that I think the treasure is fascinating to people is it lends itself toward the creation of a community. So, like I said, I mean, there's a fairly active, like, subred about this. Like Kyle said, I mean, this is really created around the area of Yellowstone, a way of connecting people, a way of telling interesting stories. It becomes, again, a kind of folk history around which we can unify our interests to, you know, kind of explore this fascinating concept of a hidden treasure. Although one thing we've talked about before in, in preparation for this is it'll be interesting to see whether that continues to hold true if people get closer and closer to it. Because I mean, at the end of the day, people searching for it in vision, that one person is going to find it. I mean, Correct. The one thing with the whole community I thought was interesting was exploring the subreddit just a little bit. There are people overseas actively, not actively searching on the ground, but trying to go through the clues in the poem, posting where they think it's at, and there's people in the states acting on right. where they think it's I at. I mean, it does really kind of it, 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 it. There is a global, or not a global, but the internet does wonderful things in the sense of creating this community around looking for this treasure. I also think, I mean, that gets to the subreddit kind of encourages the envisioning of Fenn as this kind of like semi-mythic folk figure. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about, and I forget whether this was in, one of the things that we looked at in preparing for this podcast was a great documentary, which I encourage you to seek out, called The Lure. And I don't recall whether this was on the subred or on The Lure or on both, but it's been insinuated that Fenn will know somehow when the treasure has been found and you get these bizarre theories i think the one that i saw was that like someone thought fen had a satellite that would somehow tell him when the treasure had been found and you're kind of scratching your head and saying like you know are who do they think fen is i mean he's an 87 year old man why would he have a a satellite you know Yeah, I'm not sure how how it ties back to him to know when it's found. I don't think it has been found. But I do think there's something in there that maybe prompts you to contact him. Right. I mean, you do have to wonder if maybe it's the, uh, the, the biography. One theory is, because one of the things that we were kind of debating in preparation for this is, well, how do you, you know, how do you sell all this stuff, right? And, I mean, I think there's a market... I'm not an expert on the market for antiquities by any means, but I, I think there's a market such that you could sell most of this stuff reasonably readily, but it could be that there's something unique in there, maybe, or something hard to value that might make its way back to Fen. It could be the theory that whoever's going to find it is immediately going to, you know, say something about his biography or something like that. But it is an interesting point to consider how it is exactly because, and I think Fenn himself has said he will know when it's taken. And it's interesting to think about, well, how is he going to know and what does that tell us about the treasure? Another theory that I think is really interesting that kind of explains the appeal of the treasure to a certain sort of person is... Going back to the book I cited earlier about magical treasure hunting is what the author referred to as the limited good theory. Basically, this theory operates something like this. We, as a whole, tend to think of people gaining economically as a zero-sum game. If I gain something, you know, if I gain some sort of monetary advantage, I do it at your expense. And 
there are certain people who don't adapt very well to that, either permanently or in the short term because they're going through, you know, sickness or a job loss or something like that. And treasure is very appealing to those people because it allows them to get beyond that. It is truly in a zero-sum world, treasure is just an unmitigated win for whoever that person is. And so, one reason I think the treasure is so interesting to a certain sort of person is people who are going through challenging transitions in their lives, I think they become interested in things like the Fen treasure as a way of dealing with and maybe escaping some of the stress of their lives. And I think the lure is really a great example of this, right? Because we've got one of the gentlemen in the lure has some fairly serious health problems and maybe seems to be undergoing what, I don't know if he's the right age for it, but seems to be undergoing what kind of looks like a midlife crisis. There is the gentleman who, I got a kick out of this guy, he... Uh, kind of struggled holding down various jobs. He was doing IT at one point, decided he didn't really like that. Then he became a ranch hand at one point, decided he didn't really like that, and eventually just kind of became a full-time treasure hunter. Or the uh, the policewoman that you talked about, I think, was a real yes, she was the she was the other one mentioned in there, and she was retired from an injury, forced, forced retirement. So she, I mean, income wasn't an issue for her, but she had something personal she was struggling through. And uh, she started searching for the, the treasure, like, nonstop. Right. I mean, I think these these people for whom it's especially interesting, these people who are kind of struggling with life or caught in a transition, whether it be economic, whether it be personal, whatever it be. But, yeah, I think that's something that makes the treasure uniquely fascinating to people. I mean... Well, and then there's the fact that this treasure has caused people the ultimate sacrifice. Four people have passed away yeah. searching for this treasure. Most recent one, and the only one I've I've been able to research about, was the man who passed away on the Rio looking for this treasure, and that prompted the New Mexico Police Department to reach out to Fenn and call this thing off. Right, and I mean he's basically said no, and I mean I think this gets to again another reason that this is so interesting is Fenn has I think already succeeded. In the sense that he has created a legacy that, unless uh, the the treasure is found, and this Fen has succeeded in, I think, creating a legacy that's bigger than himself. We have Dow. We have other writers uh, that are engaged in similar projects as Dow, where they're kind of seeking out the treasure and writing about their experiences. Fen, I think, has taken on this kind of bizarre sort of semi-oracular state where, I mean, people are hanging off of his every word to try to figure out if he's, you know, left some sort of subtle clue about the treasure, all that stuff. I mean... So as clues go, there's nine in the poem, correct? And it's very widely known. I has, Maybe Fenn said it. The clues begin where warm waters halt. Right. And it's the next... It goes down there for the next nine lines. But he's released clues since then. So do you think he wants it found before he passes away? Yeah, so this was kind of a... And uh, just to just to throw out those clues, the official things that he has identified as clues that he's released then are as follows. He has said that the treasure is hidden higher than 5,000 feet above sea level. He has said that the treasure is not associated with any structure, so it's not like buried under an outhouse or something like that. He said it's not in a graveyard, and he has said that it is neither in Idaho nor in Utah. I think the question of whether he wants it to be found in his lifetime or not is an interesting one. My suspicion is he doesn't, and here is why I think that is. I think the most compelling theory as to why Fenn has created this, or why Fenn has created the myth of Forrest Fenn's treasure, is to create a legacy. The risk of creating this kind of legacy is as follows. If Fenn's treasure is found, the legacy ends. There's nothing else to it at that point. 
if the treasure isn't found, the legacy goes on. And I mean, I think this jives with kind of his other explanations too, right? If he wants people to explore the outdoors, if he wants people to, you know, have this sense of adventure in their lives, then it makes sense to drag it out. I don't think that... I don't think that someone finding it within Fenn's lifetime is consistent with the reasons why Fenn hid it in the first place. With that in mind, I think, and Kyle's the expert on this one, so I'm definitely deferring to him here. I think the next, and uh, <laughs> the question that's probably been on everyone's mind from the beginning is, so where is this thing? <laughs> So the first clue is where warm waters halt. So I'm going to read a small excerpt out of Too Far to Walk from Forrest Fenn in Chapter 5. Occasionally, I'd ride my bike into Yellowstone Park to a spot about 20 miles from town where a seldom used dirt road turned right off the main drag. From there, it was a mi about a mile down that road to Firehole River. Just before the river, there on the right, was a green geyser pool which spilled and spewed a small streamlet of boiling water that ran downhill for about 50 feet into the cold river, my secret bathing spot, where the hot water tumbled into the stream, was maybe four feet deep and long, beautifully green river stresses swayed back and forth in the gentle river currents just several feet distant. Sometimes I'd pull up a handful of grass and use it as a washcloth. I never used soap there because I was afraid it was bad for my karma to pollute the pr pristine river. I could change the water temperature around my body just by moving a foot or so. Sometimes I stayed in that place for two hours or more. When I decided it was time to leave, I'd back up a couple of feet downstream where the water was cold. That gave me instant incentive to climb out, sun drying the tall grass that populated the riverbank. It was a wonderfully uncivilized pleasure in a remote area where nothing could interrupt the purity of my naked solitude. I made that bike ride more than a few times, even though it was somewhat arduous to pedal that far at only one manpower, but it was always worth the effort. Now the National Park forbids swimming where geyser riverlets enter a stream. They also close that little road to all vehicles, even though where it meets the river is one of the most beautiful places in the park. Several years ago with my daughter Kelly's family, my wife and I drove to the little road, it's paved now, and walked to the river. Winters are cold for those without such memories. Surely, God underestimated his ability when he created the Firehole River. So I think that is where warm waters halt. I mean, it makes sense. From there, the poem says you follow the canyon down. And then I think that that's the Firehole Canyon down the river, put in below the House of Brown. Um, in my research, brown trout in the Firehole River originated above the Firehole Falls. So they couldn't, that's where they originated. And then, so that would be the House of Brown below that would be the falls where there's water high waterfall and heavy loads is also the waterfall so i think it's in the i think it's in the firehole falls area of yellowstone it's been known that several people have gotten within 250 feet of this treasure i just don't think they found the blaze right and that's something that we were kind of talking about in preparation for this you know the blaze is, I think, an interesting clue insofar as it, it, it has to be something that... Because, I mean, this treasure has been hidden for something like 10 years. Fenn has made no indication that anything has changed. So it has to be something that's lasted this long. You, we've seen some stuff in our research that has suggested, for example, that the blaze is like evidence of a forest fire. And that to me seems implausible. I mean, it has to have been something that would have lasted since Fenn found the treasure. The other thing we know is that, you know, Fenn has said, don't go looking in the winter. I, I don't think this is necessarily connected to that. I think Fenn's concern with people looking in the winter is frankly practical. Nobody died looking for this thing. But I'm inclined to believe that the blaze is maybe some sort of local greenery, some sort of local plant, some sort of local natural phenomenon 
that is visible only in seasons other than the winter. And that's why, like I said, I think I think it's some sort of plant or something because otherwise, well, just sort of an intuition, I guess. Very well could be. It's also something I think you have to be able to get within a couple feet of because when you find it, you have to look down and you'll see the treasure. Now, I think it could be overgrown possibly if it's in the ground, but you look down, you should be able to figure out that there's something there. Other people have thought it's something larger that you could see in a distance. That doesn't make sense. You could see that from a million different places. It has to be something small that you can get within a couple of feet of, and you look down when you get there, and that's where the treasure is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. If anybody finds this thing, uh, we expect a 50% cut for our theoretical contributions. That being said, I, I think this is a good point to sort of reflect on where we've been in this discussion, and what our final thoughts are. I'll go ahead and start. My final thoughts, I think it's uh, The Thrill of the Chase. I'll go back to the title of his book, and that is what it is. That's what's so fascinating about it, is The Thrill of the Chase. I do think it's in West Yellowstone. For those of you, I'll throw you for a little loop. I do think there's a small chance it could be in Taos, New Mexico. There's an excerpt in the thrill of the chase about a gal he knew who he spread her ashes in Taos on Taos Mountain. I wouldn't be surprised if he also put it there. That does fit all the clues. But I do think it's in West Yellowstone. So w- w- walk us through, just so I know, because the, the Taos theory is one I'm less familiar with. Walk us through how that ties into the clues. So the clues are it's at least eight miles north of Santa Fe. It's a, I, I don't have the exact... Uh, feet above sea level but it's 5,000 5,000 feet above sea level it's it's higher than that Taos Mountain is it's 300 miles west of Toledo and it's in the Rocky Mountains so I mean it also fits I mean there's also a million other places that fit but Taos and West Yellowstone are the only parts that tie back to the books and his life and he does say the books do provide clues so I do think it's in one of those two places I will go with West Yellowstone and Fire Hole Falls for my final answer, but uh. <laughs> and I think that the fact that again we're back to clues about his life is really my final takeaway from this. What I came back to again and again in collecting my thoughts about the Fen Treasure is that it really is a a mode of telling folk history. Fen has created a semi-mythical account of his life. Other people have transmitted that, retold it, and recreated it. And so I think that's one of the things that is really fascinating about this is on one level, we have these people experiencing the thrill of the chase. And on another level, we have the creation of our own contemporary myth right in front of us. You know, Fenn has managed to create, and Fenn's admirers have managed to create a myth of his life. I think that's a good point to close it off on. Kyle, again, thank you so much for introducing me to this topic. Thank you for coming on. I've had a blast doing this. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Love doing it. If you ever do an episode on D.B. Cooper, give me a call. Yeah, D.B. Cooper is a is a pet project of mine. I find uh, him or her fascinating. Next time on dial myth we'll be discussing the Delphic Oracle. The Oracle, active from the 8th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D., was revered across the classical world. Her home in Delphi is a spot of great mythological significance in the story of Apollo, who is said to have slayed the massive serpent Python there. The priestesses of Apollo, who maintained their temple at Delphi, engaged in prophecy with the aid of priests as attendants. This prophecy, in turn, attained a life of its own with uh, examples like the story of the prophecy to Croesus, maintaining significant mythological resonance in our day-to-day lives. The story of the prophecies of Delphi has fascinated us ever since. While well elaborated, the histories of the oracle contain much to question and many conflicting facts. Further, theories about what caused the site at Delphi to be significant and what caused the oracle to prophesy have been disputed to the present day. 
Most intriguingly, some scholars have theorized that the oracle was inspired to the heights of religious experience and prophecy by natural gases in the area. As one author put it, maybe the oracle was just getting high. Next time, we'll discuss these theories and more. I hope you'll join me in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Dial a Myth.